I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello. Hi, everybody in the, our audience. Hi, Claire Louise. We're here uh, in opposite parts of the world, I guess. And uh, to discuss your incredible new novel, uh, well, I don't know if it's a novel or not, an incredible new book, Check Out 19. I'm sure everyone who's here is a fan of yours, so I don't think we're going to do a long introduction. Um, but just to say, this is your second book after Pond. And I want to read something you wrote in the Dublin um, based literary magazine Gorse. It was an essay about Elizabeth Smart, and you say, whether animated or listless, Smart exhibits what E.M. Forster calls a profound vivacity, a term that doesn't so much denote a passing mood, but rather refers to a level of awareness which enables one to formulate a continual and sincere response to everything one encounters. And I feel like sometimes when writers write criticism, consciously or unconsciously, they're writing about themselves and their own work. And this seems to me like a very apt and beautiful description of what I love so much about your work. It is so alive, so aware of the world in which the narrator is situated in a way that seems very rare and very rich. And I, when I read your books, I experience them on so many levels, like this just memory and the feeling of being in a space and the feeling of the space being alive. Um, it's such wonderful work. There's not an easy way of talking about your books. And so I don't want to pretend that there is. I feel like when I was reading your books, um, one of the things I was thinking about was how critics make this mistake of thinking that in order to talk about the book, they have to perform an understanding of it and sort of perform a kind of aboveness. And I don't feel like your work lets one do that. It makes you aware that, in fact, there's not a value to doing that and there's not a possibility of doing that. Do you have any thoughts about what kind of relationship you want the work to have to a word like understanding? Well, first of all, thank you. Sheila, for agreeing to this event, to participate in this event. Um, I was, yeah, quite excited to hear that. And from what you've said so far, it's just really, really interesting, this idea of you've been, I don't know whether the word's humble or what it is, but to just be open and say it's difficult to know how to speak about this work. It's, um, it's a rare thing. It's a rare thing. Um, quite often in interviews, you're, you're met with maybe 
uh, a reading of it that doesn't fit and then you spend the whole interview you know at logger not at loggerheads but just feeling a little bit out of place or something so this is kind of an interesting place um to to start and i suppose it it makes sense because i'm interested in how we make meaning and how we come to understand ourselves anything being in the world and like there are there are the usual i suppose maybe methods of of doing that there are the familiar methods of of doing that um and also representing that in writing also it's not like i'm deliberately trying to be obscure or obfuscate things or it's just like when we when we grasp something it's it's always just so fleeting in in any case you know and i think it's maybe trying to get something of, of that across that it's just i just feel everything is kind of in, in motion a lot of the time and yet there's a sense of i think maybe a, st- a still point i read this thing yesterday because i really don't like the phrase stream of consciousness how, how do you feel about it well it's like a lot of liter- terms that we use to put a bunch of books in the same category it i don't like doing that with books each writer it's their own mm-hmm. soul <laughs> and so to say stream of consciousness just um all the difference between them is lost and like the difference between them is the interesting part yeah i feel i feel that way i find it that gets used a lot and you think well it's just because it's this like thoughts going on it's like a mind in action but as you said that's yeah that could be said about a whole a whole range of books and um all of literature in some way yeah really yeah so it it feels yeah it feels a bit i suppose frustrating but i was just reading something um recently about how that term was first applied to Dorothy Richardson's work and she she says like consciousness isn't a stream it's more like a still point like a tree which i quite liked which yeah. just goes against what i said about motion but it's like everything around is motion and i don't know i feel sometimes like i have a still point and anyway i i don't know i suppose it's just that thing where i spend maybe a good bit of my time trying to think of other ways of understanding stuff or something yeah and different things are important in the book than are important in other books so i mean what this book checkout 19 when i started reading it the opening i don't know 5 or 10 pages really astonished me because you're narrating the reader's experience of reading in a way that i've never had i've never been conscious of like the way that you kind of rush um from the bottom of one page to the top of the next page such that you don't really read what's at the bottom of the right page and how we read the right hand side of the page different from the left hand side of the page and that was some of my favorite writing in the book i feel like this book is a lot about coming a writer or a relationship to writing what's one's relationship to writing what why does one write what are books and that is such a nice beginning because it's so physical it's so grounded in this thing that we do when we read i'm just curious where i mean i, I don't like asking where it came from but like let's just say like when you wrote that did you how okay here's a basic question like how long did you think that could go on for because when i started the book i thought the whole entire book is going to be this 
<laughs> oh, well, that would take quite a lot of concentration because I was really kind of having concentrate on that because I'm really not great with, you know, right and left and stuff. <laughs> so it was quite hard <laughs> in a way. See, that first part, that started in a very, very different way, like a really, really long time ago. The the we the we thing. I I wrote a piece. I would say maybe fifteen twenty years ago, and it began. We remember our first memory, don't we? Yes, 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 we do. Which isn't the same thing, is it, as the first thing that happened? No, no, we don't remember the first thing that happened. So it was to do with a memory, and actually it was to do with one. My, my first memory of, is of a song. Actually, it's of a, a song I heard on on the radio late at night when I was a child. Laurie Anderson song. It was a big hit, you know, the Superman. Anyway, so the whole thing was about that, and then, and I always kind of liked it. And I always went back to it, but I wasn't sure whether I liked the subject matter particularly. Um, and then I was in Paris for a while, a few years ago, on a residency, and I I liked the wee thing. I liked to think about that cadence, and I liked. I like this voice and they're kind of and they never argue with each other. Like there's just there's just constant yes, yes, no, no. But they don't ever say, oh, no, we didn't. Oh, yes. It, you know, there's no bickering going on. So it's kind of a, a cohesive thing. Right. And then I wrote loads in Paris with that. But it was it was very bad. And I remember reading, doing a reading in Shakespeare and Company for like quite a while, this stuff. And I thought it was great, but it was actually very, very bad. Um, and I pretty much got rid of all of that and started again. But this this was part of something else, actually, as well. And then I just kind of cut it off. And then I thought, well, you can't really start but with later on. Because in the original piece, it made sense because there was stuff before it. Right. I can't remember now what stuff was before it. But I didn't want the other stuff. I just wanted that bit. And then I thought, well, you can start a book with later on, you know, because there is a before. <laughs> that doesn't yeah. really, um, so that's that's kind of what happened. And then. And then, of course, when it became part of this book, it also changed a bit anyhow. It went from, yeah, sitting with a book, just one book, and then the materiality of it. And then I suppose, yeah, and then the, the awareness of, of the reader and wanting to show that I am, you know, aware maybe of there being this, this reader eventually, hopefully, that's going to gonna hold this and, it, and, it, and experience it. And so throughout, there's different ways maybe that it does draw attention to itself as being a book, as being a red thing, as being sometimes like, I don't know, the punctuation goes a bit awire or it's just different things that remind you that you are, you know, not in a in a story. That idea of, I guess maybe it's slightly Brechtian, I don't know, but we'll talk about theatre maybe in a while. <laughs> but yeah, so, but I know there's no way I could have sustained that for like, no, of course not. And I and very quickly I was like, how did you think this was going to be 300 pages of this? I mean, that's just crazy. No, the book, I like what you just said, because the book does make you aware now and then that it's a book. And yes, that's very Brechtian. And I don't think a lot of books do it. I don't think a lot of books do it in the, or any books that I can think of do it in the way that yours does. I, I'm specifically thinking about when phrases are repeated between chapters or pieces, repeated or almost repeated. And there's this sense of, that I get of the writer making a decision to let the repetition, which is kind of a bit of a wrong or messy thing to be in a book, 
letting it be in a book, which I like because I, I mean, of course, the main thing I feel about your writing is about the uniqueness and beauty and originality of the sentences. And yet at the same time, there's some kind of wrongness or messiness or sense of accident being allowed to remain. Yeah, because a couple of editors who looked at it said, oh, do you know that you repeat? And I said, yeah, yeah. Um, and there, there might be slight variations. Yeah. Um, when it's, see, from what, from what I know about you, which is not a great deal, but from what I've read, we might work in kind of similarish ways, but I, I do have a lot of material that I'm kind of pulling from and working with over a period of time and arranging and organizing. And um, so actually, there just might be different versions. Right. And maybe I can't choose which one I like best or something. So I think I'm going to put them both in, right? But what yeah. I like, <laughs> but what I like, but really what it is also is that um, with certain things that you, you find yourself going back to and writing about again, because I'm, I'm really not very good at um, organizing notebooks and stuff. So I will actually know where a piece is. And I mean, like, I just cannot go through all that stuff to find it. You know, it might be a paragraph, but I know it's there somewhere kind of thing. So I might just write it again or I feel like writing it again. And then I did start looking for, I was like, just try and find the, the first time you wrote this thing, whatever it might be about sitting on a log on the mountain as a student and try and find the first piece that you've written about about that and that's what I did and I found those pieces and I wrote those like many many years ago and I wanted to keep keep those intact I didn't want to edit them I wanted to include them because they've got their own emotional frequency or something like I when I wrote that those I was like a really young person so it contains like I, I believe that your writing absorbs who and what and apart from just saying what they you know the words say it has that emotional energy and that that interested me to have these kinds of different layers I suppose from, mm. from times before rather than it all being now you know from now and having yeah. my my emotional uh, frequency and way of like smoothing it all out into a kind you know like didn't want to do that really so that's what yeah so that's why I I put those in like that because that's how we are anyway isn't it really when we look we look back we're always kind of flitting from different versions and yeah stuff. yeah absolutely that makes so much sense uh the way you just described that that that's because the book does feel there's a lot of ways that people recount memory but Recounting a memory, like you say, from the present tone that one is existing in is very different from being able to somehow actually excavate another time, which you can do if you have writing from another time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, why, why waste that as well? Do you know what I mean? You just think, well, why, why waste that kind of snapshot of that? You know, and it's something that Annie or No talks about, you know, so well. You know, and, and, and in her work, and I'm going to start reading some Marguerite Duras again because it's been quite a long time. But the idea of kind of collapsing time and collapsing those distances between your, your different selves. She writes, I mean, they both write about them just so, so poignantly. But yeah, but weirdly, like, I think looking at the, the novel um, Checkup 19, there is 
it is kind of chronological as well, which is kind of strange. But it it goes from like that first that first section, that opening section is seems quite they're quite young, talking about going to the library with their the parent or an adult. And then it moves into school and then there's A level college and then there's I don't know what there is then. Oh yeah, there's like this character called Darkwing Superbus <laughs> just kind of lands in. So it does, you know, it does kind of move. But then there is like, yeah, this kind of collapsing of of time that goes on within that 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 structure. I think I mean I have so many questions. The Tarquin Superbus part is fantastic, and the way that that chapter ends is perfect. I didn't know how you were going to end it, but it was just so dramatic and moving and I mean I don't want to overstate it for the audience but it was just perfect like did you know that that ending was coming or was it one of those endings that came as a surprise to you because what no, I, just I, the audience, I didn't know that any of it was coming <laughs> the whole, I mean, the I whole thing it. was just so it was just so balmy the whole the whole thing I don't know what went on I mean I don't know whether it was to do with the fact, because I wrote it last year, pretty much. I mean, I bought it all together last year. Obviously, like I said, a lot of the material was already there, but I've been really frustrated with some of it for a long, long time because it just—I just wasn't able to get it to kind of come together or do anything or be, you know, alive or just always. But anyway, for whatever reason, it—it just—I think just because I had to stay at home and there was nothing else going on, and I can distract myself or waste time. And I was just kind of here and everything just really, really quietened down. It was really nice in the way there was like all that just noise and I don't know, this this chatter that seems to kind of always be around somehow. It just sort of receded. And um, I just felt like a lot of things just coming kind of to the surface. And I felt sort of I felt I felt confident about what I what I was kind of doing. And I, I don't know if I'd lack confidence. For, for quite a long time or I was getting caught up in just the kind of the literary kind of I don't know thing or something I was being self-conscious or something like that but all stuff that was not really useful at all and it just kind of went and I was just here and it was like I was just back almost like a little girl again you know kind of just writing and finding just your joy in it I think I have to feel kind of a joy when I'm writing if I'm if it's, I mean, for a long time, it it wasn't joyful. It was just like, oh, I feel kind of ugh, doing this, you know, because it's just so shitty. But, um, you know, you kind of think you should keep going. And maybe, maybe it's good. I just think of it like turning on a tap and there's just brown water for so long. And then, you know, finally you think, oh, OK, starting to run a bit now. And then, I don't know, Sheila, it was like whatever kind of came up. I just went, I just went with. I, I wasn't like, oh, well, what's that for? And what's that about? And how does that fit? I just started writing about the Tarquin Superbus, which a lot of people won't know, is a story that I started to write like years ago. And it's it's a recounting of, of this story. And it was quite a strange story. It's about like this guy, an aristocratic type guy in Vienna or perhaps Venice or and I just, yeah, created this kind of this 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 character that I've, I've never really done before and haven't done since. And, and I I just I just thought, oh, I'm going to work with that, and I'm just going to put it in with the narrator's thinking, you know. And and then it, of course it just kind of it just grew, and it had I don't know, it had a kind of a, a like happens, I suppose, a kind of a life came into it, but it never becomes realistic. It never becomes 
like a, you know it's, there's always a sense of anyway I'm not explaining it too well but um and then the book then the books thing kind of then comes into that where the narrator starts thinking about books that she's read and books that she hasn't read and again I thought that would be maybe just a few lines I remember being upstairs in the bathroom cleaning the shower door and kind of going oh I could say I've read at that stage I'd read blah 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 but I hadn't read blah 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 and I liked that I liked that kind of rhythm of that I liked so I thought oh, I'll do that for a bit that's kind of nice then of course it ended up being like 60 pages or something. and I just kept on you know different things and but I just thought I don't I'm just gonna let it like whatever is coming up I'm just gonna let it and it just felt really important I don't know it felt really good to do that and it's one of those things that um sometimes you can kind you can kind of forget but it, it was like if I want to do that, it's because it matters, you know, like I'm writing about what what matters to me at this moment. And it, I don't for some reason that felt like a kind of a poignant and, and necessary thing maybe do at that time. And it, I think it took me quite a, a while to, to work up to that because I guess it does. Right. It doesn't I wouldn't I wouldn't um, assume to be able to take up that space to tell people what matters to me. <laughs> you know, take it took a bit of time to get there. And I don't know whether it had something to do with my grandmother dying I found it very poignant in your book in motherhood how you talk about um, your grandmothers and your mother but I think there was definitely something to do with my grandmother dying my grandmother died when I was in Paris and I was on that residency writing absolute crap and I just thought you're here in Paris this is insane your grandmother's died last night I remember sitting in the Jardin de Luxembourg and it had been snowing it was a really snowy uh, January, February, and it had settled, which is quite unusual in Paris, apparently. My grandmother had never been to Paris. She hadn't ever left England. She barely left the county, Wiltshire, where I grew up. And I just thought, this is really crazy. I'm in Paris on a residency. They're giving me a stipend, which I'm spending on wine and chocolate eclairs. And I'm writing Codswallop. <laughs> this is insane. You know, and she stayed and she stayed with me. Like, I had a very, and when I was in Madrid then, I having these dreams and she kind of came up in the morning, very early in the morning, I'd see her face, not her body, it was just her face, and it was quite close to me. And it was like, I, it was like she knew I was doing it all wrong, and I knew I was doing it all wrong, I was approaching the whole writing thing all wrong, and I don't know. So yeah, it took, it took quite a bit of time. What was the wrong way you were approaching the writing? I was just sort of like, try, just trying to do something. And writing's not ever really been like that for me, you know? I don't really, you know, write and think, oh, yeah, that's, you know, I don't know. I can't explain it, but do you know what I mean? Do you have that sensation ever? I mean, I feel like I have to trick myself into writing. So what I'm trying to, what I'm connecting with you is you saying I was trying to write something, which to me is opposed to I was writing something. And mm. so I was trying to write something is like you have an idea in your head of what you want to write and then you try to write it and that just doesn't work because writing comes from a deeper, more mysterious place. And so I'm always trying to write without thinking this is ever going to be something I publish. This is just for myself. No one's ever going to see this. Like there has to be a sense of the privacy. I know I tell you what it was I think what it was is I felt like I was getting into the role of being a writer and then I wrote 
Right, Jack was away. And sometimes I'd be on residences and stuff. And I'd be like, oh, well, I'm a writer. And now I go up to, back up to my room. We've had breakfast or whatever. Now I'm going to write. Kind of weird, actually. And, you know, and I'd sit there and go, OK. <laughs> yeah. Do some writing then. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so I, and, and I, because it's not, maybe it's not a coincidence that I got it done here in my own flat. I don't really need to go on a residency particularly. I haven't got, like, a really busy, crowded life of loads going on, in fairness. Like I apply for them basically so I can spend time in a nice city because I don't live in yeah. a big city, right? <laughs> yeah, so right. it makes sense. It makes more sense, I think. And then when I'm at home, I don't think, oh, you know, I'm a writer. I'm going to sit down and write now because I don't have a writing space. I don't have a study. I have just this one room, which I watch movies in, make my dinner in, eat my dinner in, write. I have, a, you know, it's all kind of, so it's just part, I suppose. It's just everything oh, is. Yeah. Yeah. And you write when you feel like writing. You don't have a specific time that you write. It's just like part of the flow of life, I assume. Yeah, I just write when I, yeah, like I wrote, I wrote a couple of hours last night to take my mind off something that really annoyed me yesterday, actually. <laughs> yeah, but like that, sometimes I have to trick myself. You know what I mean? It isn't always that like I feel this impulse or anything like that. Sometimes I have to go, oh, just write it because it will be going on in my head. You know, and I think, don't be so lazy. Just write that down because you'll forget. <laughs> You know, I, mean, I won't forget, I won't forget. And then you do. And then you're like, oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, I do have to trick myself. Okay, well, here's something that I wanted to say that that's a, kind of a revelation. Um, I, I was listening to the radio documentary that you made and, and reading. Um, okay, I'm going to read. I'm going to read something that you wrote. Okay. Uh, when I... When I read, when I read Quinn, I recognize when I read Quinn, I recognize her fidgeting forensic polyvocal style as a powerful and bona fide expression of an unbearably tense and disorienting paradox that underscores everyday life in a working class environment. On the one hand, it's an abrasive and in your face world. Yet at the same time, much of it seems extrin extrinsic and is perpetually uninvolving. One is relentlessly overwhelmed and understimulated all at the same time. Is it any wonder then that such a paradox would engender a heightened aesthetic sensitivity that is as detached as it is perspicacious? So then you're, you go on to talk about how Quinn talks about how uh, when you're in a working class environment, the walls are paper thin, you rarely have any privacy. And so the actual physical world imposes on you more. It's interesting because when I when I read Pond, I always have this feeling when I read books, especially by women who notice their environment, I always associated that previous to this revelation with a kind of upper class wealth curated. I can see the pears in the bowl because I've been able to like make an aesthetically pleasing environment around me. And it had never occurred to me that, in fact, it could be the opposite that creates this attentiveness to the world and one's surroundings. I'm just curious to talk to you about that a bit because it was such a revelation to me that this sensitivity to plants, this is the name of this plant, this is the name of this, you know, this is a pillow, could come from, yeah, this completely opposite environment to the one that I thought that, you know, wealth trains you to care about objects, etc. That is really interesting. Because I remember not not long after Pond um, came out, I did that really quite silly thing where I had a little peek on, you know, Goodreads. Do you ever look on Goodreads? It's not, it's not a good idea, right? But 
<laughs> but it was my first book and and I'm not on um I'm not on social media, so I guess I just wanted a sense of how people were receiving the book. And some people, particularly actually people based in the UK were like, were like, oh, she's just obviously just got lots of money and is just sitting around all day. <laughs> and um, some of them got really quite bitchy, actually. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, wow. Um, yeah, so that, that perception. And also it would be quite difficult, I think, for anybody in the UK to imagine that you could live that way if you didn't really have much money. Like I was actually um, on the dole when I wrote Pond and I did live in a cottage. Like, you just wouldn't, that wouldn't, I don't, th I don't think that's going to happen here now either, really. I don't, I don't think it's very likely that, that that's something, um, but I, I was extremely, even then I was extremely lucky. It was just an amazing bit of good fortune. And I lived in that cottage for four years and I got booted out. They put it on Airbnb, Airbnb you know, we know the story. But yeah, it just hadn't occurred to me that it would seem like the way you described it, like this very just purely aesthetic kind of experience, really. And then I think, yeah, we check out 19, like there's loads and loads of lists. Yeah. Of stuff. And the mother, it's really important for the mother to have things. And it says, you know, she, they, my, my parents, the narrator says, started with, with nothing. They had no things. It's important to have things. Things hold life in place, like pebbles on a blanket at the beach. You know, great. We've got we've got the stuff. Everyone knows that. Like, you, if you've got good stuff, you feel good. You feel like you're doing good at life. You know what I mean? And there's signifiers as well. You know, they show other people that you know, like about Ray Bans or you know about Flagler tennis rackets or you know whatever. Oh, well, they've got barber jackets or they've got you know that it has this kind of currency and stuff. And I was aware of that as a child growing up very much so like people like stuff and things I mean everyone is that thing I mean and I remember that particularly in terms of shifting from maybe one class to another and you think that maybe you can just do it through objects you know that's the naivety of it you think oh if I just get those things then I too I've, I've moved in which it, it's not actually you know it's not it's being middle class is, it's got um there's a lot more going on it's to do with connections and and cultural capital in a in a very different kind of a way, but um, yeah, yeah, it it is more it is more complicated than just purely an aesthetic thing for sure. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Um, I, so I, I also really want to ask you about psychology because you said, I don't like psychology and the idea of working out the whys and wherefores. I gave up theater because I didn't enjoy thinking about human experience in that psycho- psychologized way. Can you talk about that? Because, I, yeah, the book is not interested in psychology. It's not interested in really who this character is in terms of, well, I think psychology is, is founded on, you know, comes from medical, uh, comes from medical science, which is about disease. And so psychology is really about the, it's about the di- disease, the disease that makes you who you are. And I, I feel like that's because its roots are in medicine. You're not interested in the disease that makes the character who she is. Um, and I feel like that's kind of what drama is too. I mean, that's what tragedy is, right? There's like this fundamental disease that creates mm. your terrible fate. Well, it seems like a bit of a weird thing to say in a way. And maybe it's hard, isn't it, to sort of define you know, psychology. I might be, I might have been misinterpreting it, but yeah, from what, from what you're saying, I suppose my difficulty is with, that I have with it is it seems to, it seems to think that from the off, almost like Catholicism, that there is something inherently wrong with you. Right. Right. Um, in a, you know, that you need to be cured. Right. Um, and it's something that the book explores. Um, there is conversation in there about, about um, you know, mental illness and particularly female um, depression and so on. I, wonder, I suppose one of the big things in, in, in the book is, you know, how much is our own fault and how much is to do with, the environment that we grow up in. And I think something like depression and anxiety and so on, I think that an awful lot is laid upon the individual. That's how it's treated and that's how it's spoken about. There's something wrong with you. And we need to talk for ages and ages and ages about your childhood. Now, it's different if there is an identifiable trauma that's occurred. I understand that. But Sometimes it's not, it's not that, it's just let's try and look for something, right? And let's just think about maybe how bad your parents were and maybe they were just trying their best and they, I don't know. But it's, the, my point is, is that it's, it's looking at something in you that is wrong, whether it's your past, whether it's your biology or your genetics. It's like, well, where can we find the, rather than saying, well, what kind of a weird, fucked up society are we living in? <laughs> Which would seem the most obvious way of thinking about why people are feeling the way they do. I mean, to me, it seems like a very rational response, increasingly so in the world that we live in, that people feel anxious and depressed and listless and all the rest of it. So that's that's kind of why I don't sort of endlessly kind of dissect and, and go into, um, yeah, those whys and wherefores on a very sort of, I suppose, individual level you know yeah and i say that we don't have personal responsibility and and things of course we do but you acquire it and it takes time 
you know, it takes time and you you have to kind of work, work at it in a way to have personal responsibility. I feel like if you have, I mean, I, I this is not um, something that your book says, but it's something that both books sort of show me, which is the value of idleness um, and the ne- necessity for just simply more space, um, not just in terms of living alone, but I think that's kind of part of it, like the value of actually being alone and the value of more time between every thought and more time between every action. It just seems almost like this madness is a result of a kind of overstimulation. I don't know. That that's the that's the feeling I get when I read. Like, okay, have well, yeah, because it's very easy, isn't it, to just and for a lot a lot of people who who don't have maybe the, that space and that time, it's very easy to just you know keep keep going and that momentum keeps people kind of got just got you know going with and you don't get and that was the interesting thing about the the COVID thing right because then there was lockdown and then I mean sure people's lives were still pretty crazy because they were having to do like a million things in their one home but at the same time it gave people a lot of pause a lot of time to, to, to reflect and I think you know that's why they were so keen on trying to get us back out there was as possible because it was like we don't want people to have that moment where they reassess and think do I want to keep doing this or actually that didn't make me so happy or I you know I did just realize there was maybe a lot of things that they could live without yeah and I think that's then the narrative started up again like oh wow we're rolling for a great summer and we're all going to party and it's like but everyone I spoke to individually said that they weren't really ready for that yet or you know it just they didn't care or so the narrative that was kind of spun in the media no was quite different in a lot of ways from what I was hearing and maybe my friends are a a bit I don't know no they're quite different rangy people I don't know but yeah it was interesting actually yeah like everything is is designed to, to 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 not allow that that moment to just kind of think for a minute you know yeah, and say what do what of this actually continues to have value for me? I mean, for myself, I feel very much more I feel more detached from friendship in a way that doesn't even feel troubling. Not How to say that I don't care about my friends and love my friends, but I feel less need to see people um, than I did before. I feel like it's fine to go a year and talk to my friend once a year rather than every month. I don't know. I just I can't remember what I got from it that was so important to me that it, it had to be such a humongous part of my life. You can, I can, I somehow was able to fill that up with nature and books and my doll. I mean, just other things. It doesn't have to be human conversation between friends. That's not the only way to yeah. live in the mind, which for me it was like talking things out with other people. Oh yeah, okay. That's kind of what I mean. I think I went the other way and spent more time with friends. Oh, really? Yeah. It's interesting, all the changes. I don't think anyone comes out of this unchanged. Well, I suppose it's because I was here and they were, you know, here and depends where your friends are to a certain extent as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was I was kind of fortunate in that in that way, the close friends here. Um, so There's a line in the in this in Checkout 19 that I just want to read out. What exactly was the point of reproducing an illusion? And this is written when the character is talking about um, 
drawing as a little girl and how she's not good at it. And is it because she can't notice the world or can she not notice the world because she can't reproduce it? And then she says, what exactly was the point of reproducing an illusion? And I feel in some ways like your books refuse to reproduce an illusion. And that's why they're so interesting. And the illusion is the, the, the things that one brings into most stories and most novels. And you said elsewhere that you were sort of afraid of stories when you were younger or something. Mm. Like stories kind of made you anxious. Like, can you just talk about your relationship to like, like the conventional story? Like, do you like do you like story in that narrative? Here's the beginning. Here's just in the, in the most basic way, like in the way that the TV gives us story in the way that. Yeah, I can feel myself getting a bit like on edge even talking about. I don't know what it is. I think it is because I think. I'm just not going to get it properly because I remember the stories ending and thinking, I don't really get that, <laughs> you know, like, or I, I would have followed a thread, but I would have followed the wrong thing or I would have got involved with the wrong character. You know what I mean? I would have got caught up in the wrong character, something like that. Okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And then that sense of, and it's still a time, isn't it? Because you can feel a story moving towards, you know, an end. And, and that used to make me feel kind of very melancholy. Even as it was being read, I could feel it, end, you know, it was going to end. I didn't really like that much either. Yeah, it was quite a lot to do with the fact of not, maybe just not being able to follow it properly. Like, I was not very good at following sequences either, because I remember being doing ballet and I, could, I couldn't ever follow sequences very well, which was a shame, because I was pretty good at ballet, actually. But... um I was just always in the wrong, you know, in the, everyone else was doing what they should be doing. I was, you know, so it's just, <laughs> I can't follow stuff very well. Because I got a bit, I got a bit of a few sniffy comments in, in one of the newspaper reviews at the weekend. And it kind of reminded me in a way of the reviews of that Anne Quinn got, you know, when, when her books came out about, and, and these, these quite, I suppose, posh white blokes in the 60s were saying, oh, she thinks she's writing something experimental, but she's not really in. She's just copying the French. And it was kind of something along those lines, you know, kind of trying to maybe put you back in your place kind of thing. And I thought, that I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not writing a nameless character or using long paragraphs just to be kind of, you know, different or whatever. This is, I was a bit irritating in a way. It was like, this is. Like in the same for Anne Quinn, right? This is, and it, that's why I wrote that that thing about this is, a, you know, a real, a bona fide kind of way of trying to write about the world and 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 how it feels to be in the world and what the world looks like and my interaction with it and that blurredness, you know, of of feeling so kind of porous and you know, I'm not writing from a position, and she wasn't writing from a position that's you know tucked tucked away somewhere in this kind of beautiful study, you know, with plush kind of chairs and stuff like that. I mean, I'm still in a precarious place here. Like, my flat's been up for sale for the last year. I don't know where I'm going to go when it gets sold. I can't afford anywhere else. It's ridiculous. So that's, that's just a very unsettled, like, so how can I how can I then sit down and write this, you know, the novel? <laughs> you know, how I, it's not how I feel in the world. I just, I've never, I've never had that, that sense of, don't know what it would you know I think you need maybe a certain sense of rootedness or security or something but I don't 
that's just not been my reality. That's, I guess, why I, but then say, you know, I've always kind I've always written that way as well. But maybe it would have smoothed out. I don't know if I, if I'd found a more door kind of setup or something like that. I don't know. But it's irritating. It is irritating when people think, oh, it's just experimenting or it's just like, well, it's not. No, it's not. Mm. <laughs> well, I think, I think partly some writers may feel the precarity that you're talking about, but not or feel whatever they feel, but not be able to then go and write in their own way. So a person may feel all these various different ways. They may feel, well, novels don't really represent the way that I feel. But then that's still such a huge leap of, mm. I don't know what, work, talent, uh, luck. I don't know what. It's a leap. But to then be able to get that other way of dealing in the world down on the page. Courage, I don't know what it is. So I'm or also, Sheila, what you, what you come across as well. You know, what, what's agree, there. What's yeah. So, you know, hopefully... I mean, there have been obviously in recent years more and more books that are difficult to categorize. And yeah, I just hope that younger readers and see that there's just more possibility in the in the form, you know, and feel and feel freer in how they can talk about what they're experiencing, I guess, because people's lives are increasingly more precarious, you know. And the novel form doesn't just seem to correspond, you know, it doesn't seem to seems a bit disingenuous in a way as an as a form in terms of you know reflecting doesn't seem fitting I guess what I want to say is that I read somewhere that you said that you were not going to publish for 10 or 15 years in or I don't know if this is true if you ended up doing that or not but in order to have like a buffer of time in which you could find the way that you wanted to write whereas if one from the very start is like constantly just trying to publish I don't think I think it would be hard to get to a, a similar kind of place that you got to because you yeah, are trying to, I mean, don't you think? Yeah, that's true. I remember thinking that when I was about 19, 18, 19, when I got into a bit of a tiss because I was reading um, some books written by, that were published when, when uh, different women were, you know, really quite young. And I thought, oh, God, look. Um, and then it occurred to me that, just to leave that anyway. Um, well, because first of all, I don't think I would have been able to have handled it, really, just sh showing my work. I mean, I don't show many people my work. Anyhow, I'm not a writer who, as I go along, like no one saw it until it was completely finished. And then that was that, I, which might be a bit of a mistake in a way, because then I felt really weird, because the next thing it was just, that was not such a clever thing to do, actually. I don't think I would have been, I would have been too young to have dealt with other people looking at it. Uh, I remember going for an interview at a university in, in Bath, a creative writing university, and I didn't enjoy that experience. Just the interview was just, I didn't like it at all. Because it felt like they knew. They knew what, you know, writing was, and I, and I didn't or something. It's not saying you, you don't learn. But how do you learn? Like, who can tell you what the best way? There's a really interesting um uh, essay by um what's his name Rancière he talks about this about how a gap is closed between a person who knows and a person who doesn't and the person who knows presumes to know how best to close that gap you know and it's like well do you really I know that there's things for me to learn but are they those things that you're offering me maybe I'm the best one weirdly maybe I'm the best one to know what I need to learn and that's how it felt to me 
because even though I knew what I was writing wasn't something that would be published, that didn't matter anyway, because it, it was obviously serving some sort of function in my life that was important to me um, and was integral in some ways, maybe to my survival or something. I just had a particular thing that I wanted to achieve, I suppose. I couldn't, I didn't know how to form it. And it was just working out the form. I love the idea. I love thinking about form, you know, I find it so exciting. I mean, it's one of the most exciting things about, about writing. You know, why just write, you know, in this sort of pre-existing kind of a way. And I remember thinking, I thought, if you look around in nature, there are millions of different kinds of leaves. It's not very imaginative, is it, that we've got, like, a normal, unsure story fucking up, really? Like, can you look around at the proliferation of variety in nature and the organic world? I was just like, but there, it's that organic thing, isn't it? It's like, what, what, can, I, what can I produce from my own psyche and from my own experience and my own, you know, and it, and it, and it creates and it shapes and it... I mean, I've only read, I've only recently started reading your work and I've always meant to. And it, it's brilliant. I absolutely loved motherhood. And I got that too. I was just like, this has come from, this is shaped by real time and, and yes, yeah, like a psyche or something, you know? Yeah, that's the most fun part. I mean, it sounds like we work in similar ways where you have a lot of material. And the fun part is less for me writing all that material than, as you say, like shaping it like finding how it all fits together, that really feels like the writing to me. That feels like where mm. the true vision, like that's where, like when you say like you had this form and you, you know, and you did this thing, like I can see it in front of me. Like you made this gesture of I can see it in front of me, you know? And I think it's like, you can see it in front of you. You can feel it in your body. There's like a shape in your body that you're somehow trying yeah. to externalize. and that. And that the patience of of like how close am I getting? How close can I get? Like is how much can I take out? And it still is yeah. the same shape. Yeah. And then it's it's yeah. Then it's funny. Then it, it kind of the more I suppose the more that's done, the more it speeds up in a way because it's like it's pulling what it needs towards it. You know, it gets to that point where it it knows yeah. what else it needs, and I'll go and flip and dig up a thing from however many years ago because I know that that's yeah it is it is a great I love that I love that bit you know I love that part and it's and I, I guess again that's why I suppose I get a little frustrated when I hear things like oh stream of consciousness because it makes me think that it just think I'm like that blah, 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 blah. I'm just pouring it <laughs> no there's just shitloads of of craft in this no like and an arranging yeah. and an architecture and just like <laughs> that can be can be a little frustrating but maybe like you said right at the beginning it, it is maybe that that thing of maybe you know I can forget that that if people haven't really had a reading encounter like checkout 19 before then it's hard for them to maybe think about what it is or how it works or you know what I mean maybe well it's hard to want it's hard to ask the critics to understand one because you are making a million decisions as a writer when you write a book like this like you make a million decisions but you also I think want it to appear effortless and so 
there's, I think, a lot of great art plays this trick where the trick is that it looks effortless and you sort of want it to feel, you don't want the writer, the reader to feel the effort. And so when somebody says essentially like this is stream of consciousness, in some way, the trick that you were trying to affect worked. It worked too well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess, yeah, you're right in a way. Yeah, you don't, you don't, I guess you don't want them to see, yeah, all the, all the mechanics or whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it's just, I guess it's just, I suppose, yeah, I suppose sometimes it's just that, that, and the frustration, like, is it a short, like my first book, it went on and on for ages. And I read, it's funny reading reviews now because in some re reviews or write ups, it's referred to as my, my first book of short stories or, and this, this is my debut novel or puns referred to as a novel, you know, and then, and I, I don't mind, like, I always, and people ask me, they say, what, what is it? And I say, well, it's either both or it's neither. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a book. It's a book. Isn't the word book good enough for you? <laughs> yeah. I, so maybe it's just a general frustration, but I get, you know, I guess really at the end of it, if, if people, if people are enjoy it and are able to connect with it and engage with it, I guess I guess I get worried because those words are used, and I I almost feel like that they're almost there to warn people off, you know, like oh it's experimental or oh it's you know, they're kind of used sometimes in a way that's a little bit like cautionary. <laughs> well, there's wonderful questions from Hannah Vincent, Charlotte, Gwendolyn Riley. Ruby Wallace, Hannah Vincent, Rebecca Watson, some wonderful writers ask, ask you questions that I have neglected to convey to you. Well, we um, might have answered some of them because some of these came up. Some of them, but thank you, everybody, for giving your questions. Maybe just quickly ask this, just like a variation on this question by Hannah Vincent yeah. about ballet. Can you say, I also did ballet. Can you say if there is anything about ballet that taught you something about writing, about having done ballet? Maybe that could be our, our, one of our closing question is, was there anything about dance that translates into forming a, a novel such as yours or a book such as yours? Well, I didn't do it until, you know, like I didn't do it and do it. Like what, what age were you until you, you kept it up? I mean, I did it when I was a little girl, but it made an impact on me. And I've, I've done it over the years. Like, even as an adult, I've gone back to do ballet classes. I feel like it suits my body. Like, I, I like being graceful. I don't know if I am good at it, but I, I enjoy moving in that way. I would I would like to do that, actually. I, I, it's occurred to me over the years. I mean, I love it. I love it. And I think and it, it there's a passage in Checkout 19 that touches upon it. And it's just that thing where it's a, it's a weird thing to be um, – to be doing intensely if you're a professional ballerina, because one way of looking at it is that you're you're spending so much time on your body, training your body to have as little contact with the ground as possible. But you want as little contact with the earth, you know, and the, the thing that you're kind of almost striving towards is just that one, you know, that one toe on the ground. I mean, I think it's kind of phenomenal, but really crazy in a way. It's all very aerial, very... Um, that's, I don't know what that's got to do with anything, but. Well, it does. It's like, you're, I think your the books have one toe on the ground. I mean, I think that <laughs> is actually quite right. There is a sense of, of a ta ta yeah, I, I think that works as a, 
That works. It's a lovely image, though. But and then, but how much work, you know, again goes into like hours and hours of training to create this beautiful kind of lightness. Yes, and the 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 the, the ballet critic or the dance critic is aware of all the work that the ballerina does to make it look so effortless. I go to the ballet and sometimes I like to sit right at the front because you hear them like, like you hear all of the breath and then the moans and you, you see the mechanics of it. You see how hard it really is. Only when you're back far enough, does it look quite so effortless. Yeah, it is beautiful. It's very moving. But if you do go back as an adult, um, I did have that experience that you had of, I can't remember the three moves that they gave us. So you, <laughs> that, 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 is, that is unfortunate. Yeah. Maybe My sexuality is obviously, you know, <laughs> that's it. well, that's another thing. That was another connection. I learned from ballet that I don't have any sense of narrative. <laughs> sure. I could not follow a sequence at all. It was a shame. That was the end of my ballet career or any hopes for it. I was pretty good. Well, it's been so nice talking to you, really, like a, a real gift. And I'm so happy that the LRB set us up and that Jacques Testard at Fitzcarraldo published Pond and that Jonathan Cape has published this new one. And it's just congratulations. It's it's Thanks really so incredible. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. You know. yeah. yeah, it's been really enjoyable. I can't believe how quickly it went in a way. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.